Hello and welcome everyone to the Therapy Insights Resource Roadmap Show, where we learn how to use the resources inside the Access Pass. If you're subscribed to our resource library, you have instant access to all of the resources that we're going to be talking about today. If you're not a member, you can get started today by heading to therapyinsights.com. If you're listening to this episode on a podcast or watching this video on YouTube and you want official CU credit, head to therapyinsights.com and click on CEUs. Fill out the form for the PT Resource Roadmap Show, episode number three, to get your certificate of completion. I'm your host, Shweta. We also have our Therapy Insights writers, Ross and Troy, with us today. Hey, everyone. Yeah, hey, guys. Thanks for having us again. Cool. So really quick, since this course is being offered for CEUs, we do need to verbalize our disclosures. All of us here are being paid by Therapy Insights to run this show. So let's get started. We have a great lineup of resources again this month from Should I Get a Meniscectomy, Minimizing the Concurrent Training Interference Effect, um, High-Intensity Gait Training After a Neurologic Condition, How to Perform Oculomotor Examination, and What is Heterotopic Ossification. The first resource that we're going to dive into is High-Intensity Gait Training by Troy. Troy, since you wrote this piece, I'll let you talk about it a little bit. Tell us about this. Yeah, absolutely. So this uh, this resource is is really comes from a um, uh, yeah from some recommendations that were made and and I don't know I can't see it up on my on my screen um, just to get that up uh, but yeah it was uh, sorry everybody on... let me get this going here then we can... no worries <laughs> I thought maybe I could leave my two displays up but I can't so here we go. All right, perfect. Yeah. So it's really based on um, a CPG that came out, a clinical practice guideline that came out, um, I think, in 2020. Uh, and, and really, this is meant to provide uh, physical therapists with the ability to, uh, to kind of quickly and um, uh, accurately record um, gait training uh, performance measures, as well as target heart rate zones for their patients with neurologic impairment. So a lot of this is is really pretty, you know, pretty basic stuff that you you'll, you should uh, uh, have some exposure to already. But the nice thing about this sheet is the, the ones that I find that are the most helpful are the ones that I can grab and I can put right into my documentation and scan right in. So as I'm documenting in my own files, I'm saying, hey, refer back to, uh, you know, to our scan sheet on our intake forms and, and subsequent plans of care and things like that. So what this is meant to do is, is get therapists on the right track when it comes to treating folks um, with gait impairments and neurologic conditions. So specifically in step one, we talk about uh, just determining ultimately max heart rate, uh, which uh, one of the kind of classic most known equations for that is just 220 minus your age is, is how we calculate max heart rate. And then we're looking for a specific aerobic threshold um, that uh, we're going to prescribe as therapists. Ideally, that normally sits somewhere between 60 and 80% of max heart rate. So you take that 220 times the age or minus age and then uh, multiply that by either 0.6 or 0.8. And we'd, we'd run into our, our kind of target heart rate. Now, step two with this is 
okay, a lot of our patients with neurologic conditions maybe have um, some complications or other comorbidities that are associated. So I think it's up to our discretion uh, and our own clinical reasoning on what's maybe reasonable, where to start out um, uh, within that range. And then how can we increase the intensity if we can't maybe increase their gait speed? So, right. So classically, if you're treating somebody um, that doesn't have a, um, a movement pathology or motor control deficits, you know, we want to increase the intensity, we increase the speed, we increase the incline. Um, if that's not available, step two kind of gives you some ideas of, um, ways that we can increase intensity and in ways that, uh, other researchers have done in this, um, clinical practice guideline in the past to, to work towards getting um, that target heart rate up a little bit higher and, and into that kind of aerobic threshold where we're, where we're seeing the most benefits um, for individuals. Step three, right, is just perform or is just recording performance. So two of the most classic and standard measures um, that are well documented um, uh, in for, for folks with neurologic conditions and, and others was a six-minute walk test and a 10-meter walk test. So a six-minute walk test really trying to capture um you know, the, 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 the client or the patient's ability to maybe ambulate in the community and to walk in the community, how, how far can they go? Maybe it's starting to touch into what's their endurance like, um, is this six minutes, um, uh, might, might be challenging that a little bit. And then the 10 meter walk test, more of an assessment really of gait speed. So we'll measure that in meters per second. Um, and you can use that to determine fall risk, um, or right, ideally we're improving gait speed, um, as time goes on through, through therapy. So use this, fill it out is what I have it envisioned as, um, and yeah, scan it into your documentation, come back, pull it back out with, um, with your patients. It's one of my favorite things to do whenever I'm doing a progress note. And I do a lot of progress notes because I see folks with, with, chronic conditions. So I see folks for a long time often. And one of my favorite things is progress note day when I can pull out all of my measures that we took on, on day one or on our last progress note and say, Hey, look at, look at this change, these changes that you've made, um, you know, and, and really be able to get some buy-in from them, have them understand that their hard work is paying off because sometimes, you know, folks after stroke or after spinal cord injury or, you know, other neurodegenerative conditions, they just live in the grind of the day to day. And it's helpful to look back, hey, what were things like two months ago? What were things like three months ago, potentially, um, to see, oh, actually, yeah, we're, we're, we're doing good work here. So yeah, so that's, that's my hope with this one. Um, I hope you guys find it useful. I was going to say, Troy, I actually have uh, been using uh, this uh, principle in practice since I read your uh, uh, piece here uh, for the last month or so. I have a gal with uh, TBI who's had uh, her TBI for about 15 years and making any progress at all on a six minute walk test is is hard with her. And I've been working with her for a long time and uh, I've been using this for about a month with her and she improved a good 50 meters. I don't remember what the uh, MCID or MDC is, but for her, it was huge, you know, so yeah. I was yeah. going to say, it really, it really does work. And it's a, it is a pretty nice piece. Yeah. 
I know. And, and actually, sort of as we as we move on to this next piece, maybe this is a good time to do it. Um, it's kind of talking about the um, uh, the article that supports some of this, right? That, so we have a little bit of a theme here in this resource and then the next article that's coming up um, about high intensity gate training and um, yeah, and improving outcomes. And it's it's honestly, it's a little... Uh, counterintuitive, right? I think as movement specialists, we're like, okay, hey, let's fix the, you know, let's fix the technique and the mechanics and, um, and, you know, oh, let's, you know, avoid this circumduction or all of these things that we learn in school, and then come to find out, guess what, just getting some hard work done really pays dividends. So um, yeah, I'll talk about that. The patient too, at least in, I found that as well. Yeah, great, great. Um, <laughs> My question to you, I mean, this is not particularly to you, Troy, but just like in general, just something that I'm throwing out there. Like, would you consider adding cognitive tasks to step two at all? You know, that's a good question. I think if your goal, it depends on what your what your what your goals are, right? So I think you add cognitive tasks. I can't imagine or i would be quite surprised if you're going to improve improve uh um, 10 meter walk test data or even six minute walk test data now are you going to improve their ability to potentially participate in the community go grocery shopping or something like that absolutely right i think that makes good sense adding that um that cognitive task to the um to the activity i think makes it a little bit more um a little more functional a little you know, take it out of a, a closed environment and put it more in an open environment, especially for somebody um, like Ross's patient that he mentions that has traumatic brain injury. Yeah, there's probably some deficits there. Um, but if we're if we're really if we're just looking about um, uh, kind of improving gait speed and gait tolerance, you know, I, I guess I can't say for sure, but but it it wouldn't be on the top of my list as opposed to just increasing things that are going to cost you know, energy. So. <clears throat> Got you. Cool. Well, thank you for that nice one page handout. And like you said, like most of your resources are very compact in terms of like how we can take that and fill it out in the clinic and send it to a physician or, you know, how we can track progress. So I really love that about your resources. Just kind of wanted to tell you that. Um, Thanks. We'll move on to the article that you were mentioning, which is related to this particular resource. Um, It's the improving spatiotemporal gait asymmetry has limited functional benefit for individuals post-stroke. So I'll let you talk about it, Troy. Yeah, great. So so this is one of many articles, excuse me, that this original CPG that I was talking about um, has, has kind of looked at and that um, you know, APTA's neurologic section would recommend uh, for kind of literature review and reading, um, and and really what it what it talks about is pretty much what we were just what we were just mentioning this um, this previous concept or or maybe um, misnomer or misunderstanding of a lot of therapists is is that we really look for symmetry and we really are trying to improve mechanics um, with gait, especially after stroke uh, with someone with a hemiparetic gait. Um, it's, it's often 
you know, it's it's easy to see, it's easy to recognize, and it's something that often we we go after right away. And I'm not saying that there's no value in that, but um, what this what this article really suggested is, I think they had uh, you know maybe upwards of about 50 subjects. Um, they put them in, uh, or they all all the individuals after stroke. Um, I believe they were more on the chronic stroke side as opposed to an acute stroke. So this is somebody in a six months post, um, post stroke. And so in an outpatient setting, and they looked at gait symmetry, they measured it really with um, uh, a stride length, uh, or single single step length, as well as stance time um, per limb. And they found that, uh, um, that when they did try to train these asymmetries, and, and what they did was they would they put them on 18 different sessions um, and they on a split track treadmill that can help to modify um, gait and stance times because the, the treadmill track is moving at different speeds. So they kind of normalized that to the, to the patient, tried to train um, them in that environment, and then looked at these uh, outcome measures after the fact. So they were really trying to measure uh, or, they, or they were assessing uh, changes in gait speed, in balance, in energy requirements, um, and overall activity levels outside of, of therapy. So they had, you know, activity monitors on them as well, and, and a variety of different outcome measures that assessed these, um, these pieces. And really, they found pretty limited um, uh, effect from those that had trained um, on gait uh, asymmetries, or these different kind of spatial temporal gait um, patterns uh, to improvements in their outcome measures that they were hoping. Now, um, so, so some trained uh, gait asymmetries and some didn't. Now they did find though that, guess what? A lot of people's six minute walk tests improved. Um, so kind of getting back again to this other point of, hey, just getting the job done and, and working on, on gait in general and in, in getting the intensity up um, does show improvements. The other catch to that was they, they didn't notice that despite changes and improvements in six-minute walk test for both, uh, both groups, um, they didn't really notice that it uh, altered their um, activity outside of therapy. So the next question would really be, you know, and, and we have it on the bottom here, how much training and improvement need to occur before we affect the lives of our patients. So, right, there's often um, MCD data and um, MCID, so minimally clinically important difference and, and detectable change um, that we should be thinking about and paying attention to, because in this case, despite their, their um, significant improvements in some of their measures, uh, they didn't actually, the, the subjects didn't actually um, participate in any more physical activity um, outside of the session. So, yeah. Great. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. On to our next resource. Um, our next resource is a nice one-page handout on should I get a mastectomy? Um, since this was put out by... Ross, we'll have Ross talk about it. Off to you, Ross. Yeah, so uh, with this piece, um, in our clinic, we see a lot of uh, people who have uh, meniscus tears and uh, 
Um, a lot of them, uh, a lot of people in the United States in general actually are treated with meniscectomies still. It's one of the most common orthopedic surgeries. Um, and uh, it's there actually isn't great evidence to support meniscectomies. And so this is supposed to be kind of an educational handout that can be useful for somebody who has a meniscus tear or something where they can really make an informed decision uh, if they decide to go through with surgery. And so a lot of times uh, in therapy, we get to see uh, people with me uh, meniscus issues before they talk to a surgeon. And this is kind of a nice handout that you can give to them so that they can kind of make an informed decision with their healthcare. So um, it kind of outlines uh, what the meniscus is, um, what a meniscectomy is, um, and then kind of goes through some of the evidence uh, surrounding meniscectomies. So um, it talks about uh, degenerative uh, meniscus tears, which is what we see more commonly typically in uh, physical therapy. Um, and it talks about how uh, there was a pretty well-designed randomized controlled trial that found that exercise-based therapy was non-inferior compared to partial meniscectomy within the first two years or at five-year follow-up. Um, and uh, most trials tend to uh, incorporate some sort of strengthening exercises for the quad, hamstring, and hip muscles, as well as uh, aerobic exercise. Um, and uh, uh, it talks a little bit about how the rate of uh, menis menis meniscectomy has not really changed over the years. It's really stayed pretty constant, especially in the United States. Um, and uh, uh, one thing I touched on a little bit is a lot of times people think they have to get surgery to um, prevent osteoarthritis or to prevent further joint damage. And if anything, the research, uh, depending on what study you read, it, it's either neutral or it favors exercise therapy. There was one study that actually found a five times higher rate of total knee replacement in people who had uh, meniscectomies um, compared to people who did not. And I'd say anecdotally in PT, I see a lot of people who come in uh, years after having a meniscectomy with a uh, pretty severe knee away. And so uh, I, I'd say that uh, um, that's important for people to know as well. Um, and then I get into uh, kind of the difference, different types of uh, meniscus tears. So um, conventional wisdom has always been like, if it's a bucket handle tear, or if there's a flap in the joint or something, those need to be treated surgically. Or if, whereas if it's a, a, a more simple tear or something uh, where you can uh, have the hoop stresses that we like, and you, maybe then you won't need to have a meniscectomy. But it was interesting because there's some research where they've actually, um, like there was one survey-based study where they took almost 200 orthopedic surgeons and they presented them with these cases and they said, okay, which of these needs surgery, which needs exercise? And they tried to see how accurate they were. And they were about as accurate as a coin toss if you're going off of the imaging characteristics of the, menis menis uh, the meniscus. So there's really, um, there's not really a good argument to be made there that uh, certain types of tears should be treated with surgery quickly. So you can make the argument that maybe exercise should be the first choice for everybody uh, for a while. And what's interesting is a lot of studies um, will actually say, oh, well, if it's a locked knee, we didn't include those people in the study because those ones obviously need surgery. And so I was thinking about it. It's like, really, well, what's our evidence for that? And I tried to find research actually looking at people who have locked knees to see, okay, do these people need meniscectomies? And I only found one study, but it was a well-done placebo-controlled trial where basically they took people with uh, obstructive complaints or, or locked knees, half of them got a placebo surgery, half of them got a real surgery, and there was no difference in outcomes between the groups. 
And so you might even be able to make the argument that even for people with locked knees, that maybe they could try exercise first. But one thing to keep in mind is that these, uh, unfortunately, people with locked knees, whether they're treated uh, conservatively or with surgery, they tend to have worse outcomes in general. And so it could be that uh, perhaps some of these people are kind of, uh, depending on whether there's comorbid arthritis or something, they might be needing a different treatment altogether, like a total knee. Um, and then I touched on traumatic meniscus tears. There's less research surrounding those. Um, but uh, from what I did find, uh, repair might be the preferred uh, treatment if it's a young patient or if it's in uh, an area with good blood supply, so the periphery of the meniscus. Um, those can be repaired. And then there's a good argument to be made that maybe you avoid surgery altogether if, if it's not a good case for repair, even in traumatic cases. So um, yeah, that's pretty much that piece. Um, Ross, did you find anything related to like specific age groups as far as these studies were concerned? Most, most of these studies were done in older individuals, just because, uh, older individuals tend to be the, the people who have the, uh, uh, degenerative meniscus tears. And that's where really most of the, uh, research is done. Um, but, and this isn't something I really got into with this piece, but there are a lot of asymptomatic meniscus tears. So it could be that even younger people have more meniscus tears than we think, and that they're just asymptomatic and uh, the knee doesn't start to hurt till later. And then that's when we start to pay attention to it more. Um, but yeah, that's, I'd say that most of this research is probably people aged like 50 to 70 or something like that. Okay. I was curious as to whether, uh, I mean, like, uh, are they looking at age and are they also looking at activity level of that person in terms of whether they're recommending surgery or not, or like. That was one, I believe that survey-based study I was telling you about, I believe that the surgeons were also given that information as well. Um, and then there's another trial um, that I'll talk about. And I think uh, they may have gotten into uh, age with that one too. I can't remember for sure, but I know that the one uh, with the survey-based study, I, I, they had that information as well. They had imaging, uh, walking uh, characteristics, and tear characteristics, I believe, for that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Ross, I, I really like this one. I think, I, I feel like, I don't know, I get this question all the time, actually, you know, and it's often one that's, you know, uh, somebody asking me at the gym or, you know, like even outside of PT or family or whatever, right? Like this is just one that comes up a lot for whatever yeah. reason. I really like how you lay out the evidence and, um, and, and allow people to, to kind of make an educated decision on what they, what they want, um, based on, on what your, your kind of findings have been, um, through the literature. So, uh, I think this is an excellent one. Thanks for doing it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And then were there any in particular that talked about like prehab? Um, not that I saw. Well, a lot of these studies, so one that I'll talk about, uh, the um, one of the studies that uh, is one of the research article reviews that I did, they, it was an analysis of the escape trial. And in that study, they basically had people start with PT and then they were trying to see which ones ended up needing uh, surgery later. And so in a sense, I guess you could call that prehab. They're, they're doing exercise with the hope that they don't need to have surgery and then going to some of them end up going to surgery and some don't. Um, but yeah, that's a good question as far as whether outcomes are improved with prehab versus not. Um, that wasn't something I got into quite as much uh, with this. 
I mean, the reason I ask is because like even with prehab and uh, not just after like, you know, something like a meniscectomy, but um, even like a total hip or a total knee, I feel like it has better outcomes, but it's mm-hmm. not being, uh, I mean, patients are not really being educated as much um, uh, about prehab as they need to be because there's right. like, I mean, um, I yeah. don't know what the evidence speaks to as far as that is concerned because I haven't researched too much into that but then I know that there have been people with like good outcomes compared to their counterparts when they've had prehab I mean actually yeah. just contribute to that up to an extent but still like prehab right. Seems, grow. right right it seems like it'd be common sense that uh, the prehab would be helpful and I would definitely encourage patients if they are going to go through with a meniscectomy that they should do prehab. And in the back of my mind, I'd be thinking maybe you'll actually just feel better <laughs> and not need the surgery, you know, but, uh, it seems like it's common sense, uh, but I didn't really, uh, look into the research on that. It'd be, a, uh, interesting to do that. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, since you were mentioning about the article that is tied to this particular resource, I will let you talk about that. So coming up is our, the article in patients, eligible for meniscal surgery who first received physical therapy, multivariable prognostic models cannot predict who will eventually undergo surgery. And I'll let Ross talk about it. Yeah, so this was the one I was mentioning. Um, it was kind of piggybacked off of the ESCAPE trial. So it was a, um, I think that most patients uh, in that study started with exercise and some went on to have surgery. And so there was an expert panel of PTs and orthopedic surgeons. I think there was 10 to 20 of them. And they looked at different uh, um, factors. So they looked at uh, um, age, sex, um, Kelgren-Lorentz scores for osteoarthritis with x-rays, ter- characteristics with MRI. And they looked at all these things and they said, okay, um, who are at the very beginning of the study, which of these patients is going to end up needing a uh, meniscectomy. And essentially what they found, um, th- they did say that socioeconomic status was weakly associated. So people with a lower socioeconomic status were slightly more likely, I think, to uh, end up with a meniscectomy, but it was such a weak association. They they said it, they couldn't really say it was significant enough to even pay attention to it. And so their bottom line conclusion was there's no factor that anyone can identify at this point based on this study that can predict who's going to end up needing surgery versus not. So it kind of just reinforces what I was saying at the last piece where it's like, probably everybody should just try exercise therapy. And I tell most of my patients, you know, it's like at least six weeks, but preferably more like eight to 12, you know, cause there's a good chance. Maybe you won't, won't end up needing uh, surgery for that. So, um, and then something else, uh, that was interesting is that the study, this was one of the studies that just automatically excluded people with locked knees. And uh, as we talked about before, it's like um, a lot of, it seems like a lot of these research studies make that kind of assumption. It's like, oh, they've got a locked knee, they're a surgical candidate, exclude them. And uh, maybe they don't really need to be doing that. Um, So um, yeah, that was, uh, I guess, the summary for that. Again, like in this, did they consider age activity? and did they mention anything about BMI as well I believe sorry go ahead I was just asking if they mentioned anything about um you know what kind of like what specific rehab rehab did they go through like their exercise 
practices or what else? That's a, that's a good question. Um, I would have to read the study again. Since this was kind of a piggyback analysis of the escape trial, I didn't really get into what specific exercises were done. I can say that most uh, most studies I, I read where they do uh, rehab for these sort of issues is um, pretty generic stuff. <laughs> it's like cycling, walking, and then strengthening exercises, things like squats, you know, um, nothing incredibly fancy is most of these, but I can't typically to the escape trial. I'm not sure exactly what their protocol was. I do know that I think they were in twice a week for, it was either six or eight weeks, something like that of supervised therapy. And I think the sessions were about 30 minutes a session. Yeah, I, feel I don't like that in front of me, but I think that's what I remember anyway. Yeah. I mean, I, I understand like, um, uh, but I, I personally feel that if they are a little more specific in terms of like their inclusion criteria and the protocol that they use, then it might be a better predictor of, okay, like how much did that influence their outcomes? Yeah. Yeah, I could, uh, I think that makes sense. So maybe um, if you are more, uh, well, and I guess that's partially what they're trying to uh, determine, I guess, is like, you know, uh, what factors are associated and really they, they couldn't find any in particular, you know, um, and maybe future research will uh, find something different. That's definitely possible. So, yeah. Cool. Thanks. We'll move on to our next resource. So our next resource is a one page neat handout with some very nice columns, tabular columns, and this is about how to perform an oculomotor examination, and Troy is the one who wrote this resource. I will let Troy talk about it. Troy, can you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, so this this document is meant as a clinician resource, something to have with you um, kind of by your side as you're going through an initial examination or you're getting ready to. Um, for somebody that you expect some sort of oculomotor dysfunction. So, um, yeah, like uh, Shveta mentioned, we have a variety of tests um, that that uh, are kind of appropriate to be going through that are part of an oculomotor examination. How I instruct the patient on um, uh, performance of that measure, and then based on the findings, kind of what potential associated pathologies uh, might be um, might be likely. So really, we're we're looking at peripheral nerve lesions or central nerve lesions. So um, in general, my oculomotor examination, and and I think uh, um, most would include um, kind of the following things. So you're looking for spontaneous nystagmus. This is, uh, this is you know, nystagmus, right, is, is more or less um, movement, fast phase movement of the eyes. Um, spontaneous nystagmus is, is uh, that's pretty significant. It's often something that you won't pick up in room light. Um, so it is something where ideally you either have some oculography goggles um, or you have what are called frenzel lenses, which are kind of like these uh, clown clown house kind of uh, lenses that that don't allow your your eyes to fixate because naturally our eyes will fixate on anything. They're they're actually required to. We can't not fixate. 
And um, that can sometimes suppress this nystagmus that we see. But um, you're looking for just nystagmus at rest, depending on the look or on the um, direction um, and the severity of that, we can make some determinations about whether it's peripheral or central lesion. Visual field assessment, I think this is one that commonly people do, or at least they're um, maybe, maybe they don't uh, actually measure, but they're at least aware of. So this is somebody that I think of you know, uh, post-stroke is probably the most common thing. I think that people are like, oh yeah, you know, they, they can't see out of their, um, you know, out of their, they can't see to the left or something like that. So what this talks about is how I assess visual field. Um, so I'm sitting right in front of them. I bring in uh, from the periphery is my finger, um, using really myself um, and my own uh, vision as a guide to um, when they can begin to see movement of my finger or come into, into vision. Um, so I'm looking for visual field cuts. Uh, normally, Normally those come on one side, um, most likely, right? That's um, that's that kind of classic uh, CBA type symptom of somebody either, you know, um, with a, a, a posterior cerebellar or middle cerebellar artery um, occlusion or hemorrhage um, will have, but it talks about what happens if we have vision loss on both sides or of just one uh, of one eye and what what those types of things can mean. Smooth pursuits is another thing that's that's vital. So what you're looking for here, this is the classic doctor's office test, right? You're going to point your your pin or the tip of your finger. You don't want you do want them to focus on it. Find that often people will just stick their finger kind of straight up like this. You really want them to try to focus on the tip. Um, so kind of pointing pointing directly at them either with a pin or your finger is, is most helpful. Um, and then you're going to go through a standard H pattern. So that that way we can really check all of the different um, nerves that are responsible for um, uh, uh, for eye movement and the eye muscles. Um, what I'm looking for is what's called psychotic intrusion, which means, um, you know, uh, the inability to track that for a moment and then it catches up or things like that. Um, psychotic intrusions are often associated with peripheral lesions and then just the inability to track or inability to see, right? We might be looking at more of a central lesion. Um, gaze evoked nystagmus. This is one that I do think um, is not as well understood um, or not as, as done as frequently, but gaze evoked nystagmus is you, you're gonna have your, your uh, patient or, or whoever you're testing, move their eyes out to the edges of their vision. Now, I see a lot of people, a lot of students um, or, or other clinicians, they'll bring that, that point all the way out to the peripheries of their vision. And it's not uncommon to actually have um, some nystagmus at the very edge of your vision. Um, even in a normal, healthy person. So if you take them way out there to that to that edge, that's, you know, you might give yourself a false positive. So you let them come back in just a little bit. And again, you're looking for persistent nystagmus and you're looking for the direction of that nystagmus to kind of help guide you in terms of your, of your diagnosis. Sometimes you'll see, um, uh, you know, someone with known um, central nervous system pathology, someone with uh, TBI, um, you know, if you take them way out on that, on the edges of their vision, they'll just have uh, non-fatiguing nystagmus that lasts for, for quite a long time. Um, vergence, this is a, um, a test where we're really just looking at abducens to see, can they, um, can they, you know, have the eyes converge? Um, findings on this suggest, you know, 15 centimeters, you should be able to see 
um, without uh, um, losing the ability to verge the eyes together. Um, you'll find other outcome measures that want those numbers significantly lower than that. Um, the VOMS comes to mind uh, for somebody post-concussive or something like that, where we want those, you know, we want those down to maybe two, three centimeters away from the nose. Um, so 15 seems like pretty, pretty substantial. Um, saccades. So saccades, this is another thing that I feel like isn't, um, you know, if you don't do this a lot, you get the saccades and nystagmus confused, or I find that that's something that's, that people struggle with. Um, but, but saccades is, is the, um, you know, I'll have my patient look at my nose and then look at my finger. So they're quickly shooting back and forth between between looking at my nose quickly and looking at my finger quickly. Um, I often you'll want to say finger, nose, finger, nose. So just like if you were doing a sensory assessment on somebody, you don't want to be really predictable um, because they can start to um, kind of accommodate to that. So you're looking for, is there a delay in, uh, in the time that it takes for that to start? And most likely what you would see is an overshooting an overshooting of one and then coming back. So, right. So if I, if I have my finger out here um, on one side and, and I say finger and they look over here and they overshoot and come right back to it. I'm not too concerned. That's also not that abnormal um, or, or, uh, I guess there are folks without impairment that will do that. What you're really looking for is they, they their eyes are fixated on your nose. You say finger they overshoot their eyes, they overshoot on the way back, maybe they overshoot again, and then they settle in. So it's this kind of zigzag closing in pattern on, um, yeah, on the on the fixed target. Um, and then the last thing that I like to assess is pupillary light reflex. So this one, again, we're, we're looking at um, what's the function of both the, the nerves that are responsible for sensing light and the motor response, right? You should see pupil dilation, pupil constriction and both sides um, as you're as you're doing that. Um, uh, but yeah, so these are the the tests that I think kind of include uh, or or go into my standard ocular motor exam as I'm screening somebody maybe with dizziness that's uh, um, uh, uh, that's going to come out of nowhere or something like that that's not positional. I'm going to go through all of these types of things to, to um, yeah figure out uh, if I think if I think they need follow-up somewhere. so. Well, Troy, I think this is pretty neat. And uh, the way you've like put in, like what are the findings with it and what could be the associated pathology in like one page is like a great reference. Um, I was gonna say that this, um, I know we're gonna be talking about our case later on, but I feel like in a way, this is a good start to that case. Cause like when you are in the initial stages of doing a like, a vestibular examination and you're still kind of trying to differentiate and screen and narrow down as to what um, treatment you're going to go forward with this patient. The ocular motor examination is very important in those stages, the early stages before we get into really get into testing. So I think that this works out great as a reference to use in situations like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. So, and, and, you know, it doesn't go into, you know, the specifics of, you know, what does a central ner nervous system lesion mean, or what, what all are the pathologies that could, that could include, right. Or same thing with a peripheral lesion, but it helps me to go through and, and be like, oh, wow. Okay. This is funky. 
um, right? Let me make sure that we're doing our due diligence and either getting you in for an MRI or uh, back to primary care or, oh, actually this finding is normal for the fact that you have vestibular neuritis. Um, and I don't need to be quite as concerned as I, as I uh, maybe was um, or something like that. So hopefully you can find this as a, as a helpful resource um, and, and maybe even just a checklist as you're kind of going through like, oh, wait, yeah, I need to come back. And I, I, I want to check this, uh, this other piece too, as I'm working through my differentials here. So. Absolutely. This is definitely something that I'm going to be able to take into the clinic right away. So. Yeah, great. Cool. Okay, we'll move on to our next resource. Um, this is a two-page handout on minimizing the concurrent interference, sorry, concurrent training interference effect. Um, and I'm gonna let Ross talk about this piece. Ross, can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, so uh, this uh, was designed as more of a resource for clinicians, but uh, some uh, uh, patients might also uh, think that it's a, uh, interesting. So it kind of goes through some of the evidence um, for the concurrent training effect um, and talks about how to minimize it as best as you can. So the concurrent training effect is essentially um, when you train for aerobic exercise and for strength and power adaptations, they have kind of competing um, uh, effects and uh, power can be blunted by aerobic exercise in particular. And so this would be very relevant for um, either athletes looking to return to play or for older adults who are looking to um, enhance function and reduce risk of falling. It's not something I got into very much with this, but uh, I've done um, other presentations like when I was at PT school, things like that, talking about the importance of muscle power for fall risk reduction and or function. And it's actually much more, um, so power being your ability to exert force, um, either with a light or heavy load quickly, whereas strength is your just force or slow speed force. And uh, power is much more um, strongly uh, correlated with function, functional activities like stair climbing, things like that. And so depending on your patient, uh, it can be important to uh, try to minimize this effect, but most people can benefit from both, um, not only for functional benefits, but also for health benefits. So this piece kind of outlines ways that you can still try to get the best of both worlds and hopefully minimize that concurrent training effect. Um, and so this uh, um, interfer interference effect, if you're talking about muscle power specifically, it can occur, um, doesn't matter what your training status is, you could be trained, untrained, um, older, um, doesn't matter. If you're talking about muscle power, aerobic exercise can interfere with power development. If you're talking about strength, interestingly, um, it's more just highly trained athletes that have strength uh, impaired by endurance training. Um, but uh, in PT, we care probably more about power uh, anyway. So I think that it, um, anybody who needs to enhance muscle power could benefit from some of this knowledge. So um, it talks about um, same session training. So it talks about if you're um, the best is really to avoid doing your strength and aerobics in the same session. So when you're prescribing your home exercise program, if you can tell people to alternate days or something like that between doing their, their strength power work and their endurance work, you will have better adaptations with that. Um, and then uh, if you do need to perform them in the same session, it's better to do strength and power exercise first. Um, 
though it's still blunted. So there's two theories as to why there is this interference effect. One is just that the fatigue from aerobic exercise interferes with power development. There's probably some truth to that, but um, it's interesting. There's uh, There was one study, and this was in rugby players, but they had uh, one group um, do aerobic training right after they did their power training. One group did it six hours later, and one group did it 24 hours later. And the group that did their aerobic training right after power training still had blunted power adaptation. So it has to be at least partially explained by things going on at the molecular level, like sig signaling pathways and things like that. So um, uh, let's see, I talked a little bit about, um, oh, and one thing that I touched on that was a uh, Kind of a sidebar, but it was a, a study that I thought was interesting. Is uh, they there was one trial I was looking at women with type two diabetes, and they were looking at health outcomes, so things like insulin sensitivity and uh, fat mass redu reduction. And they actually found that for women with type two diabetes, separating the high intensity interval training and strength training in separate days actually had better fat mass reduction and insulin resistance adaptations compared to doing them both in the same session. So there's less research out there on that, but it's interesting that uh, there's potentially even, even some uh, health benefits to separating them out if you can. Um, so I talk a little bit about duration and frequency. Um, there's one meta-analysis, it's a little older, it was done in 2012, but they did a pretty good job of looking at the dose-response relationship, and they found that um, the interference effect was lowest if you had uh, short training sessions, 20 to 30 minutes for low frequencies, less than three days per week, um, if you're looking for power to be your desired adaptation. Um, there's some research looking at volume. Um, there was one study where they um, this is again, athletes, but they, uh, took, uh, uh, athletes and one, some of them did a ratio of one-to-one -one strength to endurance, and then one did three-to-one and then another did just strength. The group that did just strength training had the best power adaptations. The three-to-one ratio, uh, group also had impaired power adaptations, but the one-to-one -one group had the worst, uh, power adaptations. So, um, even at a three to one ratio, you can still expect some blunting of power adaptations. Um, and then it goes into intensity. Um, there's less, there's some conflicting evidence with that. It looks like um, if you equate work, so um, you can do more work in a short period of time if you're doing high intensity exercise. Um, but if you equate work, it doesn't seem to make a huge difference one way or another. If work is not equated, high intensity exercise, aerobic exercise might be more likely to interfere with power adaptations because you do more volume, which is uh, is associated with blunting the uh, power development. Um, and then modality, uh, there's a lot of conflicting evidence. We don't really know. Uh, one of the newer uh, meta-analyses that I read said that uh, it doesn't really seem to matter what type of aerobic training you do. It all kind of in interferes with the uh, power development. So, um, yeah, that was uh, that piece. So, Ross, if I'm understanding this right, in terms of your takeaway, you're saying that, like, we wouldn't attempt so much of an aerobic training and power training, like, in the same session, right? Yeah, so it might depend on your patient, but uh, definitely if you're looking for optimal power development, and I'm not saying that you can't develop power at all with concurrent training, you can, but if you're trying to do it optimally, um, 
if you can separate out your trainings either onto alternate days or even waiting six hours, like that other studies showed that even waiting six hours was a little bit better than doing them right together, um, that uh, that is better. And so um, in PT, sometimes we're limited because we have to address multiple things in one session. Um, but when you're prescribing the home program, um, especially say you have a woman with osteoporosis and a recent history of falling, for that person, power is probably the adaptation other than balance training. That's the adaptation that you need. So for that person, I would be um, doing everything I could probably to try to minimize that. So I'd probably not be doing endurance training in session at all with that person, unless they really needed it. It'd probably be more just the balance training and power training and, uh, maybe stuff for bone density. So, um, yeah, so I, I'd say it depends on your patients, of course, but, um, but ideally, yeah, you want to separate it out, um, the, the aerobic and power sessions if you can. Like, even if we were to incorporate like power training into like most of the session, if we could do like aerobic training just for like maybe a warm up or a cool down, that could still work well. Right? Yeah, and so aerobic, and that's a good a good point. So if you're talking a warm up, you know sometimes we throw people on a bike for five minutes. Um, that's one thing that uh, was talked about, you know, with that meta analysis, where it's like if you can do less than 30, 20, 30 minute sessions for a low frequency, you're less likely to have interference. And so um, I'd say that there's a difference between a, a, a what we do gentle cycling on the bike for most people isn't really aerobic, you know, like five minutes on the bike, I get a lot of people might be warming up their legs a little bit, but I'm sure their heart rate's probably not going over 60% max or, you know, so it's like, I, I'd say that uh, there is a difference between a warm up and uh, true aerobic training as well. That's a good question. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Well, we'll move on to our next resource. This is what is heterotopic ossification, and um, this was written by Troy. So I'll let Troy talk about it. Yeah, great. So heterotopic ossification, this is something that not a lot of people talk about, um, but can be really a big problem. Um, it's most, so, so ultimately what it is, is it's abnormal bone growth um, that's often happening extracellular around joints most commonly. Um, in terms of why this happens, they don't have actually that great of an understanding of it. Um, but those that are at risk are often those that have had spinal cord injury or amputation um, and, and are in general are, are younger individuals. So they, you know, maybe you've acquired a, um, a spinal cord injury through some sort of traumatic means and you have um, subsequent fractures or, um, yeah, injuries along with that. Um, these types of problems can go either undiagnosed or, um, or even diagnosed, but, but not with a lot of um, uh, ability to kind of treat and manage. It's unfortunately not something that we can really um, get rid of uh, necessarily. So um, managing it can be can be challenging and it can of, often cause a lot of uh, dysfunction for individuals. So um, limits often passive range of motion is what you would expect. You're going to see this on radiographs. Um, in, in terms of treatment, <clears throat> right, you, there are some medications that can pretty much uh, um, prevent or, or inhibit bone, uh, bone development and bone growth. However, you're also working with someone, like I said, often after a spinal cord injury um, that 
needs as much, uh, you know, that just by having that injury is almost guaranteed to be osteoporotic um, over the course of, you know, 12 months or, or maybe even less. So some of the dosing of those medications can be, can be pretty challenging. Um, what you see with it, it's often pain and swelling in the location, wherever um, that is, that's well after the injury occurred. So this, this, like I said, it doesn't go away. Um, so it might be somebody that has HO is what it's you know often referred to as, um, uh, uh, much, much longer years after a fracture or years after injury. Um, yeah, which can be tough. Um, yeah, but like I said, uh, radiographic CT scans, MRIs are, are used to identify this. Um, it's graded on a scale between one and four. So I'm, I'm talking about a more severe, um, type of case. But uh, you can have grade one, which is just small pieces of bone. Grade two, grade two is pretty much getting larger and getting closer together in terms of that abnormal bone growth. What it looks like on imaging, um, I find is kind of more cloudy, more diffuse, looks like, a, um, uh, you know, um, not non-specific bone growth in, a, in, a, in an area. So this isn't necessarily... You know, this isn't like an osteophyte or something like that that's that's forming just near the bone. This can be this can be six, eight centimeters away from um, from the joint or from the, the area that was originally injured. Um, yeah. So in terms of managing this, um, you know, some gentle range of motion is appropriate, but you often don't want to push into um, you don't want to cause an inflammatory response here. So if you're aggravating it, uh, there's potential that you're um, going to be causing more problem, um, but working up to the, to the extent of the range of motion that they have would also be important to make sure that you maintain, um, yeah, maintain that passive range that, that is available um, to them. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's pretty much it. Sorry, man, like in the treatments you've mentioned that there is like limited options available. I mean, it, there is nothing that can be like an invasive procedure to really, you know. Um, I mean, honestly, no, um, it's embedded within the muscular tissue. Um, so, I mean, it would be, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's diffuse. It is um, not uniform and it's not... Um, yeah, it's not like something that can can be removed without honestly without just excising uh, a ton of tissue, which which um, yeah would would the I mean the other catch is surgery is often one of the risk factors associated with this. So trauma is is what will um, uh, potentially set you up for this, and you know to go in and and try to excise this would would potentially just lead to to worse impairment. Right. That's good. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. As always, we wrap up, try to wrap up our uh, show with a case study. Um, the case study for this month is, um, I'm going to try and talk about this in using the ICF model. So this was a patient of mine. Um, it's a 50-year-old female with right posterior canal BPPV or benign paroxysmal positional vertigo. 
um, she she lives with her spouse and two daughters actually, um, and she works as a professor at a university. And she is very active for her age. She was wanting to further her education, was kind of going through her PhD process. And um, in the process of like working on her dissertation, spending a lot of time on her laptop, she ended up having neck pains. And uh, she also had COVID. And post-COVID was when she started noticing more dizzy symptoms, more being more off balance and more neck pain. So she she consulted like a lot of specialists um, in trying to really find an answer for what her situation was and like try, also trying to find some sort of treatment, but then she wasn't really very successful. So like with the frustration that was associated with talking to so many specialists and with going to so many appointments, trying to get her PhD done at the same time and teaching, it was a lot of pressure for her. And there was a, also a lot of anxiety that was uh, setting in, in terms of like, why am I not finding an answer for my situation? And um, even though this patient was kind of educated, like she um, had a brother-in-law who was also a physical therapist and, and talking to him and trying to figure out like, okay, how do her symptoms relate to possibly vertigo? Uh, at that time when she was not entirely diagnosed um, and you know just her brother-in-law educating her about the manure and her getting into the positions and really feeling dizzy like it's it's very very sensitive for these patients um, they just don't want to be in that position I personally have tried um, like using the Dix Hall Pike and even like Epley's or on family members and they just don't want to feel that feeling when they're really into the positions. So she just never really wanted to try therapy at all just because of that anxiety. I mean, the anxiety that had set in from not getting an answer and the anxiety that was associated with like getting into the position. So it was a lot to like even educate her and try like uh, modification of maneuvers and then get her solely accustomed to doing the whole maneuver and there it made a huge difference and not just in like how um like she went through the whole treatment but also like how her anxiety symptoms kind of calmed down to how her personality kind of like opened up a little bit more and how she felt like all the stress had been relieved and things like that so that was quite a life-changing experience, not just for her, but also for me as a therapist. So uh, that's why I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about this case study. Um, coming to like uh, BPPV in general, um, the resource that uh, I used with this patient, which was the most basic one when we first started was uh, the gaze stabilization progression, uh, where we're using the BOR exercises, uh, which is basically your vestibular ocular reflex, sorry. Um, so the most basic ones are the VOR1 and the VOR2, where um, you have the patient hold their thumb, or sometimes they can even hold like a pen or a card, depending upon how much they're able to stabilize their gaze on something as narrow or something wider, and then gradually get comfortable and progress into something narrow. And um, the VR one is basically trying to rotate their head in the horizontal plane and still 
fixating their gaze on the thumb or the pen or the object that they're holding out. Um, and VR2 is basically trying to, again, fixate their gaze and trying to move, rotate their head from right to left. Sorry, I might be... So this is basically like a progression of the VR one. And here you wanted like not just do that in like horizontal, but also like in a vertical position um, movement and where they're trying to like move the object and the head together and see if they're able to maintain that position. So the reason why I picked this resource was because like I said, like early on, when you want to introduce um, something that's most basic with patients like these, for them to really get comfortable on gradually progressing to more intense activities, which might trigger their symptoms. It's easier to start with something minimal to at least get them to um, feel comfortable with their exercise program and maybe even want to try it, especially for someone who might have like really high anxiety like this patient had. Um, we also have like a great course, which was actually like our very first uh, Therapy Insights uh, Continuing Education course by Helena Esmond, uh, where she talks about strategies for decreasing visual vertigo in patients with visual motion sensitivity, post-concussion syndrome, PPPD. So yeah. Um, the next resource, uh, this was recommended by Ross, which was the Eccle Manual. I'll let uh, Ross talk about it a little bit. Uh, as a orthopedic PT, uh, every once in a while we get uh, vertigo and BPPV, but because it's not something that I'm seeing day in and day out, I like uh, handouts like this as a reference for me. I'd say the Epley, um, especially for someone with right posterior canal BPPV is um, typically what I try first. And if this patient um, became comfortable enough and if she uh, felt ready to try it, maybe after working on the gaze stabilization for a while, this would probably be what I tried first. Um, and so uh, this is a nice resource that Troy made uh, where it kind of goes through uh, the different positions and uh, uh, that you go through for right posterior canal BPPV. Um, and uh, it's also uh, useful as a handout that you can send home with them. Sometimes patients do need to repeat this at home as part of a home program as well. And it's very straightforward and easy for anybody to uh, figure out how to use it. And it's also, um, I was going to say that Epley maneuver, if I remember right, I've read that it's like over three treatments is like 80% effective where it's like almost curative, you know? So it's like, if you can get them doing this, then then that's great. Yeah, absolutely. I So the thing is like, even with the maneuvers, like, like I said, like if we were to like completely related to this specific case, uh, we need to talk about like, uh, not just what the patient is coming in with, but like if they have the associated neck pain as well, then yep. we're doing that. Uh, are we able to do modifications for this patient? Like, and um, doing that screening that Troy had mentioned, you know, the, the other piece that Troy had, you know, where it's like, if you can do some screening and make sure there's not a vertebral artery problem first, you know, if they have the neck pain with it. And um, so, you know, you definitely want to make sure that you'd really nailed in on your diagnosis and, uh, and that the neck pain, uh, you know, that they could take this as well. If they had the range of motion to do it. Um, that would also be critical before you went into it. That's a good point. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Troy shared a resource for this case study as well. 
Um, so Troy's resource was cupolithiasis and the Semant laboratory manuals. So I'll let Troy talk about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'll chime in a little bit too on, on some of the other ones. Um, I mean, thinking of this patient that does have kind of extreme anxiety that you mentioned. Um, so one of the things that if, if I, you know, if I, if I put somebody back in a Dick, Dick's Hall Pike and, and write the classic thing that we would expect to see here is right torsion, right. And an upbeating nystagmus. That would, that would tell us, you know, okay, Hey, uh, this, this looks like a right-sided posterior canal BPPV. Honestly, I get super excited because like Ross said, this doing this stuff just gets people better so fast. Um, and it's, it's just one of those things where it's like, People can come in really high level of impairment and they leave feeling a lot better. But you're right. They get anxious because guess what? When you put them back in that position, it was uncomfortable. Um, and really, when I, when, I, when I talk with my patients about this, I tell them, hey, the fact that this is uncomfortable gets me excited because guess what? That means that we're on the right track and you are going to feel so much better when you leave. So like, let's, you know, let's grit your teeth here for a little bit. This is going to be tough, you know, and this is going to be uncomfortable, but guess what? You are going to feel so much better. And I feel so confident that this treatment is going to be really effective for you. So I feel like that often kind of can, can give people the oomph to, um, to get back into some of these provocative positions, right? But we do all sorts of provocative tests as PTs, but this is, this is definitely one that, that people don't often enjoy. Um, yeah, so classic, right, would be the Epley maneuver. That's what we do in the United States. If you, if you, um, if you, if you're in Europe, right, for the most part, they treat everybody instead of with an Epley, they do what's called a Samant or a liberatory maneuver. Um, Samant is the the name of the uh, person that kind of uh, developed the the test. But what this is is you can use this for cupulothiasis, which I mentioned um, in this, what we're talking about is a canalothiasis, meaning there's, you know, those calcium carbonate crystals in one of those canals. In this case, you can treat BPPV can canalothiasis with a cement maneuver or a cupulothiasis, which can also be uncomfortable for folks. That's, that's right. If you know, if you put somebody in right side lying or in left side lying, they'll have apogeotropic nystagmus that's beating up towards the towards the sky for a long period of time and it won't go away. What that means is that the cupula inside that canal is heavy. And because of that, it causes this nystagmus. What you do with this is honestly, it's it's kind of intense. You, you thought they were anxious before. You, it's kind of like uh, uh, this is a fast, high velocity, you know, I don't want to call it a body slam, but, um, but it's intense there. There, it used to really be taught as a body slam. And in fact, you know, it would be a pile of pillows on both of this, both sides. What we're finding more so now is it's actually the velocity of taking someone from one side position and trying to almost fling that, um, that otolith or, uh, whatever debris is at attached to the cupola off of the cupula and, and continue on through the posterior canal um, and, and ultimately into, uh, into the ampulla where, where we can kind of have our symptoms resolve. But um, you can treat folks with, with posterior canal BPPV with just this, if you don't want to do an epile. Um, but I don't know that this one is any more uh, um, comfortable or makes patients less apprehensive 
than the others. But you know, you mentioned like three PD um, for uh, in in terms of uh, in that initial resource. That's another thing that I would be thinking about strongly with with this patient specifically. Um, just with the anxiety that's kind of set in, um, that's that's a little bit more um, classic of that, unless it's just this positional stuff that, that she's having anxiety with, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, um, it's, it's an awesome treatment though, when it, when it works and, and you can really get people feeling good when they leave. So. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I didn't try the Samant one with her, but I actually did, uh, so I, there, the sideline test uh, for BTPV, which is very similar to this maneuver, and also brand of exercises, mm -hmm. they're also very similar to this, except that in brand of you take them into the position, you wait for it to subside, and then bring them back up, just like how you would do in that place. That actually worked out great for this particular patient. Oh, great. That doing that, she felt that, okay, she was able to comfortably get into the sideline position versus if she were to do a whole epley where she had to have even her neck in hyperextension mm -hmm. not supported. So I think like, like I said, like sometimes you might not get hardcore adjust the condition, but then we're working with other factors also. And like, especially anxiety, like psychologically, the impact that it has, it's hard. Cause when I, the first time that this patient showed up to me, like um, and I tried to do a Dix Hall pike testing with her, like she was in tears for a long time. So I had to like calm her down. And then she never, ever wanted to get back into that. And then to the point where like, and this is again, a patient who is like, you know, like is pretty aware, is staying on top of things, is really trying to find those answers, has talked to a brother-in-law who is already a physical therapist and who has told her that, hey, you know, this is pretty effective and things like that. And she has even seen that the brother-in-law like do the treatment for her husband. So in spite of that, it's hard because like I personally haven't had those symptoms, so it's hard to relate. But then you can empathize and understand that if they really don't want to get into that position, that is a lot. Like when losing your whole center of gravity and not knowing where you are in space is a lot for some people to take in. So it's about getting them comfortable. Like, okay, if this doesn't work for you, we have a, a modified position. We have an alternate maneuver that we can try. Maybe that worked out great. And then a lot of education about like, okay, or like how the patient is feeling after that and slowly trying to get them comfortable that, okay, if you don't want to try this now, wait for a few more sessions. We'll try these exercises, which are like your VORs, the most basic exercises and like try to get them comfortable with that and then slowly transition. And she got to the point where she was able to tolerate a whole epi. But it was not, it wasn't even about like, okay, like, I know, like, as far as these manuals are concerned, like, okay, if you say that you're able to do it three or four times in a visit, then definitely that makes them feel a lot better. But for someone who's like, okay, I did it once, but that's all I can tolerate for today has to be like approached slowly and, you know, build that relationship with them and then kind of see if, okay, you're at that point where you can slowly introduce or have that conversation we start talking about possibly transitioning into like a full epi manure instead of the modified one and then get the patient comfortable with everything so yeah. i think it was a good learning experience for me too so yeah well sounds like it worked great cool well um that brings us to wrapping up today's show 
So thanks so much, everyone, for hanging out with us. We'll be back next month with another Therapy Insights Resource Roadmap show. Thanks to all you therapists out there making therapy informative, empowering, and person-centered. If you do need, like, in, to, if you want to get instant access to these resources and hundreds more that we have on our website, please go to therapyinsights.com. All the links are available in the show notes. And if you have any questions about, uh, you know, any of these resources, our roadmap show, just reach out, reach us out at support at therapyinsights.com. Be sure to vote for what we create next. Take care. See you next time. Hee <laughs>